For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this afternoon is The Preserved Seed. We've looked at the persecuted seed from Revelation chapter 12. Now we look at the preserved seed. We'll focus in on verses 5 and 6. So it's good to be back with you in our study of this book. In our ongoing study of Revelation, we have now in chapter 12, we've been considering these two great signs that have appeared in heaven in the view of the Apostle John. These two great signs. The first of those signs in verse 1 is of a woman. That woman we've identified, I think, very clearly uh, with the people of God. We'll talk about that more in detail tonight. She is clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head, this garland of 12 stars. And this woman is crying out in labor, about to give birth to a male child. The second of these two great signs that appeared to the Apostle John is that of a great fiery red dragon. We don't have to speculate about what that dragon represents. We're told that is the devil and Satan, that serpent of old. His global authority inferred from the seven heads, ten horns, and the crowns, the crowns of authority upon his heads. And he is standing over, hovering over the, over the woman, waiting for the child to be born, that he might devour the child as soon as he's born. Now what we see depicted then in the relationship of these two signs together is an ancient enmity, an ancient hostility, an enmity, a hostility that's introduced in Genesis chapter three, all the way back at the beginning of redemptive revelation. It's a hostility that is revealed at the outset of a great war, a great war that has been raging since the beginning of redemptive history until now. It's a conflict that began in the garden in Genesis 3. And it's a conflict that has raged in redemptive history ever since. It's a conflict, as we see here, that is exemplified or depicted, typified, if you will, in the pain and suffering of childbirth, bringing forth a promised son, so to speak. Childbirth then becoming, as we've seen in Scripture already, having looked at these texts before, childbirth that is typological of the tribulation associated with this age. This is an age that is described by tribulation. It is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. And so childbirth, even the Lord in Matthew 24 refers to the the pain and sorrow of this age as the travails of birth pains, right? These are but the beginnings of sorrows, the beginning of birth pains. So that conflict exemplified by or through the pain and suffering associated with childbirth. And it's a conflict that continues even into our age between the seed of the serpent Um, And now, not only the singular seed of the woman, which we know to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, but the corporate seed of the woman, including all those who are in union with him through faith. Now that seed, that descendant of the woman in Revelation chapter 12, is an immediate reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says as much in the book of Galatians, that he is that seed, singular, not plural as the seeds, but singular as to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've already seen in our consideration of verses one through four, and now we're gonna see that even more clearly in our study of verses five through six. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. He is the male child. He is the one destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm 2. We'll look at that this evening as well. And that male child is described here in Revelation chapter 12 as having been caught up to uh, God and to his throne. In other words, he is protected from the nefarious intentions of the dragon that is hovering above the woman. He is preserved from the nefarious intentions of Satan. He is the obvious and promised and therefore preserved son of Genesis chapter three who would strike the head of the serpent. However, in addition to that singular reference, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman also depicted here, as we'll see in working through the text of Revelation chapter 12, also involves a corporate sense, also involves a corporate sense, not only singular in terms of Jesus Christ, but plural in terms of the people of God. And it's representative, this seed of the woman, representative of both Old Testament and New Testament saints throughout redemptive history. 
all of those who are the elect of God, called of God in time and united to his son through faith. Those placed into union with Jesus Christ uh, throughout the entirety of redemptive history. All of those born in Adam are by default, are by their nature, the seed of the serpent. All of those born to Adam by nature are the seed of the serpent. So also, all those elect of God and born again according to his spirit are the promised seed of the woman. And just as the promised seed, singular, was preserved through tribulation to crush the head of the serpent at the cross, so to his people, the promised seed, plural, are preserved through tribulation, suffering a bruised heel, as it were, through suffering, suffering a bruised heel, as it were, through persecution, while we await the promise of God from Romans chapter 16, that God will crush the head of Satan under our feet shortly as well, that corporate seed also suffers uh, as their head has suffered. And we suffer in our union with him. In Revelation chapter 12, then verses five and six, we see a reference both to the singular seed, which is Jesus Christ, as well as that plural seed, all those in union with him, uh, both with the Lord and with his church. The woman whom we've already identified with the people of God, the woman of whom both Eve and Mary are typological, this woman, verse five, bore a male child. It was the male child in verse five who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then in verse six, this woman, and again, as we've seen, this woman representative of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, this woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So we could see then beginning in verse five, if we look at verse five together, you might see there an immediate or particular reference to Mary in the birth of Jesus Christ. That's an obvious and immediate reference. She gives birth to a male child. That child is destined to rule all nations. That child would eventually, upon his ascension, be caught up to God and to his throne. We could see this as an immediate reference to Mary and the birth of Jesus Christ. But as we'll see through the rest of chapter 12, um, this vision of the woman has several reference points, broadly referencing God's people. We'll see that as we work through the text. Now, regarding this male child that she gives birth to in verse five, that reference we know is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Davidic king. Uh, that one, Romans one, who was born of the seed according to, uh, born of David, the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power. That declaration, although certainly made with power, is not the reference to power there in Romans chapter one. It's not the declaration that is with power, it is the son of God who is with power. This is one who has all authority given to him in heaven and on earth, and he is declared to be the son of God, not just the son of God, but the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This is the incarnate son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the devil is seen in verse four then at the birth of this male child as hovering over the woman awaiting his birth. And awaiting his birth with the intention of murdering or devouring him. Now that posture of the devil, that anticipation of the devil is understood in consideration of what this promised seed has come into the world to do. In consideration of what he's come into the world to do, the devil hovers waiting to devour him. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God has foretold that this one will strike the head of the serpent. In Hebrews chapter two, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He came into the earth uh, with his incarnation so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil knows it. First John chapter three, verse eight. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So we ask ourselves from verse five, why is Satan hovering over the woman waiting to devour the child? That's why. Right? That's why it has been foretold what this child would do. This child, this promised child is the one who will conquer Satan, destroy all his works and overthrow his kingdom. So in our last sermon from this text, then we looked at the, the ways, the various ways in which Satan has sought to kill the seed of the woman throughout redemptive history. Um, the Bible uh, has numerous accounts of 
the work of Satan to destroy the promised seed before or even at his birth, even to the point of Herod in Matthew chapter two, right? If you remember that count of Herod sending out his goons uh, to kill all the male children under the age of two born in Bethlehem in the surrounding area, he killed all the male children. That's Satan. When Herod is speaking, he's speaking for the dragon. We're gonna see that in Revelation 13, Revelation 14. The dragon wants him dead. Verse five then gives us three basic descriptions of this promised son. One, he would be a male child. Two, he would rule all nations with a rod of iron. And three, he was caught up to God into his throne. Let's consider now each of those descriptions in their order. First, this doesn't need to be lost on us. The child would be male. The child would be male. That's not, it is not insignificant that the promised seed of the woman is described as a male, specifically or literally a male son. The text emphasizes that fact with wording that to our ears would sound redundant, right? Literally reading, the woman brought forth a son, a male. The significance of that statement is not found to be inherent to male and female. In other words, there's there's not a significance that is inherent to our biology per se, se, a significance that is associated to the fact that we are male or female. Both are made equal in the image of God. There is an equality of being or an equality of ontology. That word ontology refers to being. There is an equality of ontology to male and female. There's an equality of dignity, an equality of worth or value. Both are of equal value in the eyes of God. However, There is a distinction that's made between them. And the significance in the distinction between them is found in the fact that God is the one who has made the distinction between them, right? God is the one who has determined a distinction, not a distinction in their ontology, not a distinction in their dignity or worth or value, but rather a distinction in their role or in their function. Now, you might have heard uh, a word, egalitarianism, before egalitarian egalitarian or egalitarianism. Egalitarianism asserts that those distinctions should be removed. That's essentially what egalitarianism seeks to do. Feminism in our day would assert the same thing. Uh, Egalitarianism, I think the logical conclusion to egalitarianism is if you follow it to the lengths of its absurdity, you wind up in transgenderism which that's a sermon for another day, right? But uh, that's its logical conclusion. Egalitarianism asserts that distinctions between male and female should be removed. Complementarianism, on the other hand, asserts that those distinctions have been determined by God. God is the one who lends significance to the distinction because God has determined a distinction between them and he's done so with a purpose. That distinction is then loaded by God with astounding significance, with great significance. Those distinctions are clearly biblical and they are clearly significant. Texts, for example, like Galatians chapter three, verse 28, look beyond those very obvious distinctions to emphasize our equality of ontology or equality of being, where Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, looking beyond obvious distinctions to ontology as if to say we are equal in value, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, we are all one, neither male nor female, we are all one in Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, at the very same time, there are texts like Ephesians chapter five, verse 23, that remind us of the very distinctions that God has determined between men and women for his good and holy purposes. Where Ephesians five says in verse 23, the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is savior of the body. There's an obvious obvious distinction between them, and that's a distinction that has been determined by God. Now, as do many texts in the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse five, is emphasizing the distinction with a purpose, right? The woman brought forth a son, a male. Now, there are many reasons why that is the case. Uh, Possibly, chief among the reasons why is a, a manifold, demonstration 
of God's faithfulness to his word in being both just and the justifier of the one who has placed faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, what do we mean by that? This, is, this, is, uh, this distinction is a manifold demonstration of God's faithfulness to his word in bringing about his accomplished ends in the gospel through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we wouldn't say that the distinction between men and women are central to the gospel, but God uses the means of that distinction to bring about the centrality of the gospel in the person and work of his own son. It becomes a very, very important distinction. Think about that with me for a moment. God has established representation or federal headship through the woman, through men and women equally. No, he's established federal representation or federal headship through the man, through Adam. Even the name Adam, Adam means man or mankind. A word literally refers to men. That has tremendous implications for the gospel. A simple reading of Romans chapter five will tell you why. Sin entered the world or death entered the world through sin. Um, That through Adam and the world fell through Adam's sin. Read Romans chapter five relative to representation. It's related, that distinction between man and woman is related to Jesus Christ being born of a virgin. You've never thought of that before. It's related to him being our prophet, priest, and king. It's related to the deep mystery of our union with Jesus Christ depicted in our one flesh relationship between a husband and his wife, Ephesians chapter five, verse 33, verse 32. It is related to we, his people, inheriting with Jesus Christ as adopted sons in the kingdom. So it has reference to primogeniture, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are multiple, multiple good and valid and very consequential, very significant reasons why this distinction between men and women exists in the Bible. That distinction should be upheld. Egalitarians who begin to yank at those threads, pull at those threads, uh, don't know what they're doing. They're undermining those things that are directly related to God's work in this world to further the gospel and the kingdom of his son. The woman, verse five, brought forth a son, a male. And that is significant in in the fulfillment of God's word. Second, Revelation chapter 12, verse five. The purpose for which this son would be born is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. He would rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now there is a distinct reference to this text in Psalm 2. And I want you to turn there with me to Psalm 2. And this reference in Psalm 2 is explicitly messianic. This is a messianic psalm. And John here, again, Revelation being the capstone of the canon, John is taking his New Testament pen and he is dipping it in his Old Testament inkwell, if you will, to bring forward these types and these shadows to show or to demonstrate their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ at the capstone of redemptive revelation. So in Psalm 2, we see a reference here to our text in Revelation chapter 12. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Literally, it's the word Mashiach. Mashiach, meaning Messiah. It's where we get our word Messiah from. This is explicitly a messianic psalm. They have taken counsel together. They have set themselves against the Lord and against his promised Messiah. Do you see? Saying, verse three, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords far from us. The psalmist in in the opening of Psalm 2 is stunned at the insanity of it. Why in the world are the people doing this? Why are they raging? Why are they plotting such a vain thing? This is insanity, right? The arrogance, you could say, the arrogance of these people. There were, at that time, three offices wherein the purpose of performing the function of that office was to be anointed with oil. He was required to be anointed with oil. Those three offices were the offices of prophet, priest, and king. God's anointed one, his Mashiach, right, his Messiah, is our promised, anointed prophet, priest, and king. This is very important. Not only was he a male child that could fulfill those offices, right? God had determined that they would be fulfilled by men, 
but an anointed office. And he is the anointed one. He is God's Messiah. He is our promised prophet, priest, and king. But he is not merely anointed with oil. This anointed one, this one, he is anointed by the one for whom the oil was made to typify, right? For whom the oil is merely a type. This one is anointed with the spirit of God. The nations, the people, the kings of the earth presume to think that they have authority in and of themselves to rule and reign in the place of God. They believe they are autonomous. They have the right to rule and reign over themselves. And so they rage and they plot. They conspire together. They take counsel together. And in Acts chapter four, verse 25, the disciples understood this opposition to be most clearly displayed at the cross against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Peter describes that scene with the Lord Jesus Christ standing before Pilate, the Pilate, the Gentiles, the Roman government, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, all coming against the Lord Jesus Christ, that kangaroo court, his scourging, his crucifixion. They describe all of that as the fulfillment of Psalm chapter two. When the people, when the nations are raging, the people are plotting a vain thing, we see the exemplary account of that in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this world, this world has been promised, not to them, this world has been promised to God's anointed. God's anointed, the Messiah alone has supreme authority to rule as God's appointed king. So then, verse four, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. It is a vain thing they plot. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this text, implies that when God's people adopt God's own attitude toward the insanity and the arrogance of the wicked, that this is a powerful remedy to discouragement. For God's people, when, when God's people are discouraged at the, the insanity and at the arrogance of the wicked, this very thought, verse four and five, is a remedy to discouragement. The one who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He is all powerful, omnisapient, right? Knows all things, omniscient. And he is all powerful. He has the power and the authority and will rule and reign for himself despite what the nations plot. Despite what the nations do. He shall speak to them in his wrath, distress them in his deep dis displeasure. He tells the story, Davis does, he tells the story of a 19th century doctor in London by the name of Dr. Williams. Uh, whenever Dr. Williams would encounter a patient of his who was suffering from depression, he would refer them to a brilliant expert uh, on the matter of depression who practiced in Scotland. So someone would come in, symptoms of depression, suffering from depression, and Dr. Williams would refer them to a brilliant expert who handled depression cases in Scotland. After making the trip, and at that time taking several days to make the trip, his patients soon realized that this brilliant expert in Scotland didn't exist. <laughs> and they experienced then how quickly depression was entirely displaced by anger. <laughs> uh, mad now at Dr. Williams, their depression magically disappeared. <laughs> so that's the point that Del Ralph Davis is making from this text. Um, I, would, I would suggest to you that that's how we're to read this psalm. That's how we're to read this psalm. When we, re we, we relate to the wickedness of our day, vented against the Lord and against his anointed in verses one through three, but we, we should relate to that as God does, the insanity of it, the arrogance of it. Our God is omnipotent. Our God knows all things. Our God is enthroned. The Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the majesty. We have absolutely no reason. They are plotting vain things. And the very thing which angers the Lord should anger us. And that should... Um, in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, that is a powerful remedy to the discouragement that it often accompanies our trek through this wilderness. The discouragement that often accompanies 
tribulation and suffering associated with this present age. We look to the rightful and righteous king and we take confidence in him. That's verses four and five. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Praise God. May he rule and reign forever. Amen? Verse six, God says, yet despite all of your fomenting Uh, vanity and your arrogance, yet God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Notice in verse six, it's a holy hill. The first time that Zion is mentioned in the Bible is when David took the stronghold of Zion in 2 Samuel chapter five. You remember that account? David takes the stronghold at Zion. Zion at that time was a mere 11 acres of land on a southeastern edge uh, around Jerusalem, near Jerusalem. Really a tiny, almost insignificant plot of land. The kingdom, you could say, in terms of Psalm 2, the kingdom begins, as Davis says, with a tiny, banana-shaped, measly, 11 acres of provincial backwater. (laughs) In terms of Daniel chapter two, it begins as a small stone and that kingdom grows and builds to become a great mountain that consumes the entire earth, the entire world. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. God sets his king upon his holy hill. That may look small to us at times, right? It may look small. It isn't small. We're not to despise the day of small things. Our God reigns. Our Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. He reigns. He is doing it in power and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. His kingdom will be built even though it looks sometimes to begin on a tiny banana-shaped hill in a provincial backwater. (laughs) We then hear the voice of this promised anointed king in verse seven. And he's quoting the words of the father that were given to him. Verse seven, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's God the father speaking to God the son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, all describe this text as fulfilled in the resurrection and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. When is the day on which he was begotten? It was the day, Romans 1, in which he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It's the day in which he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and enthroned. Right Today I have begotten you. On that day, the father said to the son, verse eight, ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. And here it is, verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalm 2 is a prophecy of the resurrection and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's long-promised and spirit-anointed messianic king. And we see all of this referenced in the three descriptions given to us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. The first, the woman will bring forth a son, a male child, not without significance, Second, he will rule all nations with a rod of iron in fulfillment of Psalm 2. Third, he was caught up to God and to his throne. If you think about verse five in that way, verse five is a snapshot in one verse with the economy of words of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus Christ, all in that that verse. So the woman gives birth to a male child and we see a snapshot in verse five of his entire, entire ministry, him now enthroned in heaven. However, there's another reference that I want you to see uh, to Psalm two, and that's found in Revelation chapter two. Turn back with me to Revelation and look there with me at Revelation chapter two in the Lord's address to the church at Thyatira. Revelation chapter two, look there beginning with me at verse 24. I want you to see this uh, reference to Psalm 2 here. Verse 24, the Lord says, now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. 
But verse 25, here's the exhortation. Hold fast what you have until I come. What is the Lord's concern as he walks in the midst of the lampstands, tending to his church during the time of their tribulation? The Lord's concern is a persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, a faithful, persevering witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26, and he who overcomes, the one who endures to the end, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And look at this reference. This reference in verse 27 is to the one who overcomes. He who overcomes, verse 27, keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. Verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now who do we recognize as the immediate referent of that statement from Psalm 2? The Lord Jesus Christ. But now the Lord Jesus Christ is saying this to whom? He's saying this to those in the church at Thyatira to the one who overcomes, to the one who's faithful. Brothers and sisters, he's saying that to you. He's saying that to me. To you who overcomes, to the one who endures to the end, the one who keeps his works through tribulation, to the one who keeps his word, who perseveres as a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ through difficulty, through trial, through suffering, through adversity, through persecution, to the one who overcomes, verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. Brothers and sisters, it's said that the saints will rule and reign with him. We will rule and reign with him. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter two saying, not only does Psalm two apply to me, Psalm two applies to all those who are in union with me. He brings us with him, as it were, ushers many sons into glory. And verse 28, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord promises us that those who overcome, those who hold fast his word, the word of the gospel, and those who endure to the end, they will reign with him in his kingdom. It's an awesome promise, isn't it? It says as much in Daniel chapter seven, that there will come a time when the saints inherit the kingdom. (laughs) We'll see that in Revelation, working through the text. The saints rule and reign with him. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned now. He is ruling and reigning from heaven now. He tells Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you a king? And the Lord Jesus Christ answers, it is as you say. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then all my people would rise up and fight for me. (laughs) My kingdom is is not of this world, but he is a king. Amen. He is enthroned. He is ruling and reigning now. And although it doesn't feel like it all the time in our present circumstances, we rule and reign with him. We rule and reign with him in the preaching of the gospel, in the spread of the gospel. We have the everlasting gospel to preach. And when we preach that gospel, the gospel of the kingdom in this world, and that gospel spreads, the kingdom spreading from a small stone into a great mountain that consumes the entire earth, we're doing kingdom work as kings and priests to our God. Do you see? As kings, priests, and prophets to our God. Prophets with their back to God, so to speak, facing the people and proclaiming the gospel. Priests with our face to God and our backs to the people, as it were, representing the people to God, praying for them, interceding for them. We are kings in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord himself has said in Psalm chapter two, to the one who overcomes, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. It's just a tremendous promise, a tremendous encouragement. They will have, those who overcome, those ruling ones, those who rule and reign with Jesus Christ will have their portion in the messianic kingdom over which he now reigns as the first to be raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ, the first fruits, and then all those will be raised together with him at the end of the age. This promised son uh, had been predestined to rule with a rod of iron. He rules over his kingdom now. It's not an earthly kingdom, as he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. 
It is a redemptive kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom right now spreading under the preaching of the gospel. It is a kingdom inaugurated at his first coming and consummated at his return when all of his elect are brought in, when he raises all of them together on the last day. Not a one of them lost except that lousy son of perdition. And we have been predestined to rule and reign in union with him. Just as, just as God preserved the promised messianic seed. You remember when we looked at that the last time we were together in Revelation chapter 12? Do you remember how God, throughout redemptive history, providentially preserved the line that would bring forth the promised seed of David? You remember? All of those ways in which throughout redemptive history, Satan hovered over the woman waiting to devour that child as soon as it was born. And in every step of the way, God in providential power and in grace and in mercy and in care and in compassion and in wisdom preserved that seed until Jesus Christ came forth and defeated the serpent. Right? The Lord preserved him all the way through. Just as God has preserved the promised messianic seed through his walk in this world, God through his providence will preserve all of those predestined to rule and reign with him. He'll providentially preserve them through their walk in this world. You are in union with Jesus Christ. There's truth to that statement that we are invincible until he is done with us. What can man do to us? What can the circumstances of this present age do to us? It can discourage us, but it shouldn't. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself at the hands of sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. He who for the joy set before him endured the cross, we can endure suffering for him. Amen? He has delivered them. He has taken responsibility for them upon himself. He has redeemed them with his own blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And just as the Lord himself was caught up to God into his throne... So also, Paul says, we ourselves will be caught up to meet him in the air. Just as he suffered a bruised heel in his trek to the cross, so too, brothers and sisters, we, we are going to suffer a bruised heel in our trek toward the heavenly city. However, the very hand that has lifted us out of the dust, the very hand that has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness is the very hand that toward those nations who rage and plot vain things holds a rod of iron, a weapon of judgment, a weapon of destruction. Psalm chapter two, verse 10. Now, therefore, in consideration of that, brothers and sisters, rejoice that he has extended to you a hand of mercy to all of those who do not turn from sin to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you'll find that hand in eternity to hold a rod of iron, a weapon of judgment, a weapon of destruction. Now, therefore, Psalm 2, verse 10, be wise, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Be wise, all you who dwell upon the earth. Be wise, you sons and daughters of Adam. Be wise, you who are by default the seed of the serpent, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, that's all it takes. Right? Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. At the time that the male child is caught up to God into his throne, Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, at the time that the Lord is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, we then see what becomes of the woman in verse six. In verse six, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We'll find as we continue to work through this chapter that the devil, enraged by his defeat at the hands of the warrior king, the promised messianic seed, now pursues the woman who gave birth to him. So in verse six, the devil in pursuit, the woman flees. The word communicates an escape. She escapes into the wilderness. Now we'll see verse six, we'll see that clarified in verse 13. When we get there, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. 
That's what his pursuit entailed. He pursued the woman to persecute her. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman, the one who fled into the wilderness, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. That's interesting. We'll talk about that when we get there. And in her place, verse 14, she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, another reference to 1,260 days, another reference to three and a half years. And she is nourished there from the presence of the serpent. So she flees into the wilderness to escape the persecution of the dragon. And once again, that picture of her place in the wilderness is very significant. Think with me. When Adam was exiled from the garden, he was placed into the spiritually barren desert of this fallen world, a place that rather than dripping with new wine and honey was a place that brought forth thorns and thistles under the curse. It was a barren wilderness. In Romans chapter eight, remember creation is depicted in Romans chapter eight is now eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of glory. A day in which even the wilderness will be redeemed, the curse reversed, and creation itself is delivered from its bondage to corruption. Right? This world, a fallen wilderness. A faint foreshadowing of that deliverance is seen in Israel wandering the wilderness of Sinai after the Exodus and prior to entering the promised land in Canaan, right? The wilderness depicts or symbolizes, is typological of the effects of the curse. A lack of food, a lack of water, poisonous serpents, misery, difficulty, and danger. The only thing that didn't seem in short supply in the wilderness was sin. <laughs> There's plenty of that to go around. Everything else was in short supply. After treading through the desert for 40 years, the Israelites were to take possession of a land flowing with milk and honey. Likewise, if you think about that for us, brothers and sisters, Israel wandering the wilderness is typological of the new covenant people of God. They're typological of us. Wandering through the wilderness of this fallen world, and just as they were on their way to a physical Canaan, we are on our way to the heavenly Canaan. When Jesus Christ was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Jesus Christ was succeeding where the first Adam failed. He was doing what Israel, the typological son of God, had failed to do. And before ascending into heaven, he wore a crown of thorns, suffering as it were outside the camp, the camp outside the camp of, the, of this, the camp that is the wilderness of the world, he was that scapegoat that was sent into the wilderness. Right? The people of God will go through their own wilderness wandering in the same way. The people of God must journey through the wilderness before arriving at their Canaan, their promised land. That theme most dramatically exemplified in the experience of our Lord and Savior who himself went through a wilderness wandering. In verse six, the woman fleeing the persecution of a pursuing devil she flees into the wilderness. But, but in the wilderness, notice verse six, far from abandoned, far from being alone, one, there's a place there prepared for her by God. And two, she's going to be fed there, nourished there 1,260 days. And what we see in the testimony of scripture then is that the wilderness is not only a place of trial and tribulation, the, place of the wilderness is a place of protection, the place of preservation. It's a place where God is prepared to preserve his people through trial. Notice it's not the wilderness that protects her. There is a place there prepared by God. God is the one who protects her. He is the one who preserves her through the wilderness. He is the one who is preserving the seed. Threats to the woman aren't merely physical. Hunger is not our only threat. Thirst is not our only, th only threat. Threats to the woman are predominantly spiritual. She faces her three enemies there, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Like Israel, the church faces the temptations of idolatry, faces the temptation of immorality in the wilderness. And like Israel, provision is given them by God who preserves them through it. God has promised to preserve his people. So unlike Israel then, knowing that that's the case, seeing the example that we have of Israel grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, their bodies, their corpses strewn in the dust as a result of their sin, not having mixed faith with their hearing of the gospel, unlike those grumbling, complaining, faithless Israelites, we should respond differently, amen?
(laughs) In our own trek through the wilderness of this world, we must respond differently. We're not to grumble and complain against God. The wilderness is a place where we're to be in complete dependence upon God, trusting in him entirely as we make our way through the wilderness of this world. We cannot act like those faithless Israelites. It's a place wherein we have the promised presence of God himself to preserve us through it. The Israelites in the desert had the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? We have the presence of our the promised presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with us even to the end of, end of the age. He says as much in the Great Commission, right? Lo, and I'm with you even to the end of the age. We have his promised presence. It's interesting, contrasting the theme of both, both danger and preservation in the wilderness is clearly seen in Deuteronomy 8. Just listen for a moment. Deuteronomy 8, where Moses says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. As we trek through the wilderness, don't forget the Lord your God. Verse 15, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water. He led you through suffering and trial and difficulty and false teachers and false brothers and divisive men and discord and strife and contention, church splits and all those terrible things that take place. The Lord leads you through trouble, leads you through tribulation. The Lord preserves you all the way that you go. He has preserved you. He has cared for you. He's put the clothes on your back, the shoes on your feet, the food on your table, the roof over your head. The Lord has done all of that for you. So don't forget the Lord who's done these things. Verse 16, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you, nourished you, cared for you, grew you in your knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ through his word, right? Grew you in the faith. Don't forget the Lord who fed you with that manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. All of this is good, right? We can rest in that promise that our God is working all things together for good, for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. He's working all that, all that together for our good. We can trust him. We can't find ourselves grumbling and complaining like those faithless Israelites in the desert. We're in our own wilderness walk, our own trek through the wilderness of this world. Brothers and sisters, we need to lay hold of him by faith and not let go. The wilderness is a place of testing so that God might do us good in the end. We don't always understand it. But this wilderness is a place of testing so that God might do us good in the end. There are some times when I think to myself, I'm not going to make it. (laughs) It's tough, but God intends to do us good in the end. And the more we embrace through faith a vision of that good on the horizon, right? The more we rejoice in hope, Romans 12, 12 the more that we can endure suffering and tribulation that we find along the path in our trek through this wilderness. If we're going to enter that land, we're going to enter that land through conquest. To he who overcomes, I'll give him to rule with me, right? If we're going to enter that land, we're going to enter through conquest. But it's there in the wilderness. It's there in the wilderness that the Lord nourishes us, feeds us, cares for us, grows us, And that again, Revelation chapter 12, verse six, for that representative time period, which we've grown accustomed to seeing, 1,260 days. That's a period, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 10. That's a period associated, Matthew 24. It's a a period associated with trial. It's a period associated with tribulation. It's a period associated with testing. It's the period of our wilderness wandering. It's a period of difficulty. How long? Are we to travel through this period of wilderness testing? 1,260 days to the end of the age and to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ where he promises, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, that through that trek, in that wilderness, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. He is with us until our wilderness wandering has ended and he himself will usher us into glory. What are the the implications for us then in understanding that reality? One is this. We must cling to him through faith. 
We must not be faithless. We must not turn away in unbelief. We must not grumble and complain in unbelief. We must cling to him in faith. He knows what he's doing. He has decreed the end from before the beginning. He is the one who has ordained both the ends and the means through which we will attain those ends. He is the one who has fashioned our days for us when as yet there were none of them. He is to be trusted. He is faithful to his word. We are to cling to him in faith. We're not to grumble. We're not to complain. We are to depend upon him. We're not to fall into idolatry as they did during their wilderness wandering. We are to maintain faithful worship in spirit and in truth. We're to maintain the ordinances of the church. We're to maintain the worship of God. We're to meet here on the Lord's day. We're to take the supper together. We're to pray. We're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to love one another with a fervent and ardent love. We are to proclaim his death until he comes. And lastly, we're not to be faithless, but believing. We are to mix in our hearing of the gospel. We are to mix faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We are to respond, brothers and sisters, in faith. And the Lord promises us, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. He is the one who preserves us. To the one who overcomes, he's going to give that one to reign with him on his throne. He is the one who preserves the one who overcomes. He is the one who uh, causes us to endure. We need to lean on him for that grace, amen? And love one another in the process as we heard this morning in in Romans chapter 12. We've got to love each other with a love that is without hypocrisy. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the promises of your your word to us. Thank you for this revelation of your redemptive plans and purposes through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ as you expand your kingdom from that small stone on that tiny hill in Zion to consume the entire planet, the gates of Hades not prevailing against it. And we praise you and thank you, Lord. We're grateful that we have some, a small part, uh, the privilege that we have to participate in the work of your kingdom. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege, the blessing, the grace in this life of entering into the afflictions of our Lord Jesus Christ to fill up in our own flesh what is lacking in those afflictions. We're grateful to you, Lord, for that grace. Uh, So with that in mind, we lean into the afflictions, the difficulties that we face in this life, and we glorify and magnify you in them. Uh, With the apostles of our Lord, we can say we rejoice when these various trials have come upon us, not counting it a strange thing, but understanding that you have appointed them in your word. You have given them as uh, as a gift of your grace that we might not only believe in you, but also suffer for Christ's sake on your behalf. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege, for the grace of walking uh, in the example of our Lord, in the footsteps of our Lord, as we make our way through our own wilderness on our way to glory. And we're grateful for the fact uh, that He will be the one that will usher us into glory at that time. And we'll finally put off the tent of this fallen world. Sorrow, suffering, difficulty, persecution will be a thing of the past worship with new bodies, (laughs) glorified bodies, worship unfettered by sin in eternity. Love you. We thank you for that blessed hope of the church. In Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.